Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. Thank you for sharing part of your day with us, whether you're listening online, on the radio, on demand. I'm grateful you are here. As we finish up our year-end reflections on notable moments in arts and culture, we arrive today, Wednesday, the 29th, at theater. And we arrive during an unusual moment. Normally during the holidays, theaters are packed, and many hoped vaccinated audiences and casts would return, but then came Omicron and a lot of cancellations. Just as we were discussing the segment yesterday, the news broke that Music Man would have to be dark a few days because star Hugh Jackman tested positive. Hope he feels better. Hours earlier, it was announced that Ain't Too Proud to Beg would end its run after almost three years. So with this as a backdrop, we consider what a roller coaster of a year theater has had. There were bright spots with innovative works. Some were on Instagram Live or backstage at abandoned theaters or in storefronts in the meatpacking district. And when traditional forms of theater returned, the works reflected changes in mainstream institutions. Joining us now to discuss her list of notable theater of 2021 is Vulture's Helen Shaw. Hi, Helen. It's so nice to talk to you. Hi, it's nice to talk to you. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to talk a lot this year, so we have a lot to cr- <laughs> a lot to cram in. <laughs> Um, you, you started your review of the year by dividing the year into three phases. What are your three phases you're looking at? Well, we certainly, the earliest part of the year uh, was still kind of a quasi-shutdown period. And so most of the really exciting work was digital performance. Uh, digital performance has continued throughout the year. I think it's something that's going to be with us forever. But certainly in the first part of the year, that was the notable that, that was our main theatrical interaction was through our screens. Uh, and then there was this wonderful period in the summer when people were trying to work out what they could do within the pretty strict bounds of pandemic legitimacy. You know, was there ways to take stuff that had been indoors, outdoors? Uh, was there stuff to, that we could do at a distance or with micro audiences? And we saw a lot of really exciting experimental pieces come out of that. And then this fall, which was supposed to be normal (laughs) and has not been, as you just said. How do you think the limitations of this past year have altered the concept of theater for, for better and for worse? Well, the two key elements of theater, you know, are uh, liveness and ephemerality. And both of those things are now not as closely tied to sort of the theatrical soul as they once were. Liveness can now mean happening at the same time, but not in person. Liveness can mean a quality or a sensation rather than something that's literally true. Mm -hmm. And also ephemerality. One of the things that I'm sort of, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna, but, uh, I'm excited about the fact that we now think of preserving and archiving and transmitting theatrical performance as something that we do as a matter of course. Uh, Filming great productions has always been something that only scholars really got to see if they went to the library and, you know, watched them at the Performing Arts Library. And now I think we're going to start from this point forward banking some of our great and important shows. And I kind of love that for us. 
We're talking about the year in theater with Helen Shaw, Vulture's theater critic. Let's go to your list. You have on it Rich Kids, A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran. This is a digital performance from, I believe, mm-hmm. Javad Alipur. Uh, it's a second installment mm-hmm. of a trilogy of exploring digital technology and resentment and fracturing identities in this year of um, all this hyper-experimental digital theater. What made Rich Kids, mm. A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran stand out? For me, it was the sophistication of how they used not just one platform, but multiple platforms during the performance. So we were watching something that was live, but we were also being asked to check our Instagram feeds and to follow along that way, as well as the people who were making the show sometimes triggering or cueing videotaped segments. So as we watched, we were we were responsible for moving from laptop to phone, from Instagram back to their, um, to their projection. And there was a feeling of the kind of antic nature of online uh, attention mm-hmm. that was built into the project itself. And because it's a project that's about the Anthropocene and what it is like to live in a world that's made by mankind as he is now, it was for me, totally thrilling. It was sort of a meeting of medium and message in a just gorgeous way. I have to ask a cynical question. And this is it. Here I am being cynical, which is not, not usually my pose. But, uh, you know, during the, <laughs> during the pandemic, people would watch pretty much anything on a screen. They'd watch paint dry. Uh-huh. So I, I'm curious if you think this sort of the excitement and the um, interactivity of going from Instagram to screen to phone Will that translate or was that something that was particularly people particularly thirsty for at a moment when we really couldn't engage with others and we were a bit bored? Well, you know, speaking of being cynical, uh, (laughs) I am a total theater booster and I love the form, but I also know that 80 percent, 90 percent of the work that's made in our form is is not going to last either you know, because it is uh, either made for a specific moment and so will kind of vanish or because it's not good. And uh, that's okay. That's, that's, I think, one of the great things about theater is we're constantly throwing spaghetti against the wall to see if it sticks. And so that, I think you're right that that frenzy of digital adaptation that happened at the beginning uh, not just the beginning, but the long middle mm-hmm. of of our pandemic. I think you're right that there, we, you know, there is going to be a huge winnowing process, and if it, it kind of looks like we might have a January where a lot of those same festivals need to go online and become digital again, uh, and I think maybe they will have uh, fewer human beings watching them than they did last January, but. My hope is that winnowing is a process of finding the wheat in the chaff. And mm-hmm. so what rises is going to be particularly good and particularly exciting because it will have fought its way through our despair and our changing attention, you know, and our, our concern about the live performance that we hope is going to still be okay. 
Let's go to another sort of interesting live performance that's on your list, Taxlandia. So it was this theater piece, we've talked about it a little bit, where the performance consists of a former cab driver turned theater maker driving Mm. audience members around his neighborhood in Bushwick. And he makes it clear Mm. from the beginning, this is not a tour. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what happens on this this not tour. (laughs) Well... The the piece is it was in my case it was performed for an audience of one. I think you could have two or three people in the back seat of this livery cab. Um, and the reason that uh, Jimenez, the Modesto Flaco Jimenez, who made the piece, was so intent on saying, "Look, this is not a tour," was to distinguish the kind of sitting back and letting the quote-unquote exoticism of the world outside flow over you. Mm. And what he wanted to create, which was leaning forward, leaning out the window, participation. We often got out of the car to look more closely at the things that he wanted us to see. And something he kept returning to, he kept driving us towards, was very beautiful works of graffiti and layered murals and a kind of, you know, uh, a neighborhood which has drawn itself and then been drawn upon and then is drawing itself again. And that he was very careful to point out that this metaphor was, was a hopeful and optimistic and thrilling one because he said, look at how beautiful these walls are, which are crowded with artistic expression. And then he would turn your gaze away from the wall and back out at the neighborhood. And you'd see what he sees, which is that the neighborhood itself is crowded with artistic expression. So it was really, it was, he kind of taught you to see what he sees. And he's lived there almost his whole life. He loves it passionately. So it was, it was thrilling. It was really kind of a, a, a brain altering experience. That's Texlandia. We're talking to Helen Shaw, mm. Vultures Theater critic, about some of the notable theater of 2021. Number three on your list is Riz Ahmed's production of The Long Goodbye, another virtual production. Mm. And this was born out of his 2020 album of the same name, which has acted out as sort of a, a metaphor comparing his home country to a selfish lover. Uh, mm. I'm going to play a little bit of an excerpt from one of his songs, which interestingly actually shows up also in his movie <laughs> Mogul Mowgli mm-hmm. um, this one is Toby Texang uh, it's inspired by Pakistani writer a short story of the same name let's listen to a little bit of it and we'll talk about it on the other side you wanna kick me out but I'm still locked in what's my name what's my name So, Helen, how did this performance, as you write, encapsulate our pandemic cultural moment? So, 
some of it was that it was, you know, you're playing there from his album. This was supposed to be a tour of that album with him telling stories and talking. It had to be converted to an online experience. And that conversion, that sort of the feeling of something being changed from one thing to another a bit on the fly is all throughout the long goodbye. You know, you see, you, you see his uncertainty moving around the theater, which is empty. You, you feel him. He's constantly expressly asking the question, should I be doing this? Is this an important thing to be doing? And as a cultural producer and consumer in the pandemic, those questions were always uppermost. So the fact that he was was doing that in the piece, that was a big part of, I think, why it was was great to watch during um, the worst moment of the shutdown. He also, though, was doing something in it which was allowing us to visit this empty building. And the kind of, I would say, almost the gimmick of The Long Goodbye is he is pretending that there is no one there with him. So we eventually realized that there is a whole production that is surrounding him. You know, there are things that start to happen in the camera that he couldn't be doing himself. But for a lot of it, he's alone with his phone. And I don't know about everybody else, but basically, even though, you know, I live with someone, I was not alone for the pandemic, but the pandemic does feel like something you experienced alone with your phone. And he found ways to make that into something kind of startling and bleak and very beautiful because he turned it into a way to stare into the phone and to see his own artistry and also the way his phone was reflecting back at him. And and so for me, I will say that my my very intense hope, this was co-produced uh, by BAM, by Brooklyn Academy of Music, mm-hmm. is that when we have this very tricky season facing us, the Omicron season, that maybe they will bring it back and broadcast it again because it, it was really special and I think more people should see it. He's so interesting. That's Rizal Men's The Long Goodbye. You have Only an Octave Apart. It's a it's a cabaret uh, show. Why did you choose this one? Uh, did you see it by any chance? I didn't. I saw it. I'm so interested in it. I never, I didn't see, I don't think it actually ever was on my, my radar this year to be honest. <laughs> Well, the, our radars were all screwed up, weren't they? It was mm-hmm. so hard to, you know, really know what was happening. But the um, this was incredible. This was a double act. Again, a conversion of an original project, which was supposed to be, they were supposed to do a show together and then press an album. And then the pandemic happened. So instead, Justin Vivian Bond and Anthony Roth Costanzo. So Justin Vivian Bond, who is a chanteuse of mm-hmm. uh, kind of cabaret, you know, part of Kiki and Herb, dirty voice, you know, <laughs> raucous, naughty character. Uh, and then Anthony Roth Costanzo, who is one of the world's greatest countertenors, uh, sang together in this absolutely wild mashup cabaret uh, at St. Anne's Warehouse. And it was I mean, of course, you know, you wonder if your yardstick has sort of changed shape because it was so thrilling to be back in a room with people actually singing <laughs> in a room mm-hmm. with you. And yet this was stuff that was top of the mountain peak, glorious awesomeness. 
because they are really two of the best voices in New York, and they are also two of the most different voices in New York. There should be no way that these two people can sing together. They, their sounds, their timbres, everything about them is opposite. And instead, what happens is you get this very beautiful kind of new orchestration that's possible with these two wild voices. And they were also very funny because Viv would make dirty jokes and Anthony Rothkostanzo <laughs> clearly just found these hilarious and so would be just collapsing in laughter and then would let loose with some, you know, Scarlatti or something that would just blow your hair off. And I love that it's arranged by Nico Mule. I mean, he's at that that sells, tells me as well. Let's listen to a little bit. This is um, Autumn Leaves. C'est une That is from An Octave Apart. I've been speaking with Helen Shaw, Vultures Theater critic. You had it, number one, a show that so many people have seen. And if you haven't got a chance to see it, you've got a couple more weeks. It's incredibly moving, even years, years after it first was produced on Broadway. Caroline or Change. In a minute, give me your your elevator pitch for some, why someone should see Caroline or Change. Uh, one of the top... 10 musical theater slash operas written in the last 50 years, performed by voices that will are an honor to hear. Um, still ruthlessly honest um, and hilarious. Uh, a Kushner, you know, libretto is something to celebrate. Also, the, the one of two Janine Tesori scores in town right now, Kimberly Akimbo is the other one. And with the death of Sondheim, Tesori may be our greatest living uh, musical theater composer. And it's very, it's, it, it, to, to hear both of them in town at the same time is, is something you'll tell your kids about. And Janine Tesori actually will be on our show next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Oh! <laughs> very excited Oh, my about gosh! That. <laughs> so I hope you'll be listening, Helen, and all of you folks out there. First yes! of all, Helen Shaw. Always excited to talk to you. Hopefully we'll get to talk to each other more in 2022. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Since WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.